All right, today's episode of the Peace on Drugs podcast is brought to you by Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup. This wonderful formula contains 65 milligrams of pure morphine per ounce and can remedy anything from a chest infection to a simple case of the blues. Does little Betty have a toothache? Or did little Charles sprain his ankle? One small capful of Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup and they'll be making snow angels in a summer field of clovers. Can't sleep because baby Dorothy won't stop crying? Just rub some of Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup on her binky and she'll be out all night. And almost guaranteed she'll wake up from that coma at some point. Uh, According to American Medical Association, this syrup has been killing some babies and maybe habit-forming, loss of consciousness, and suppressed breathing may cause death. But honestly, is dying in a morphine coma really that bad? Hell, they labeled this product a baby killer 15 years ago in 1911, and it's still not been banned here in 1926. So hop on down to the pharmacy and pick up some Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup and soothe your soul. Okay, so until I have real sponsorship, I'll be doing some of these fake commercials. Um, Today's was based on an actual over-the-counter morphine called Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup. And it was available from 1845 to 1930 here in the U.S. of A. So I'll be doing some of those, um, just kind of illuminate some of the things from our past that um, kind of have been forgotten, the pre-war on drugs things. I'm not saying all of them were safe or desirable. I think as we move out of um, prohibition, we can, uh, we can, you know, have a safer world with drugs that maybe aren't available necessarily over the counter. If you want morphine, you'd have to go to a doctor. We've we'll, we've talked about it on this episode on, on the podcast. And we'll keep talking about it. But uh, today's podcast is a solo mission. Every once in a while, I'll be doing some of these. Uh, this one will be delivered in in three sections. In the first section. Today on Drugs, I will cover briefly where we are with the war on drugs, uh, where we are with like any new legislation or potential legislation, and what I think needs to be done, the direction we, uh, where, where we're moving and how far we've come, how far we have to go. Uh, the second section, the Peace on Drugs Live, I'm going to cut to a, an introduction my wife, Megan Rose, uh, did for a speech that I gave, and I'll, in the speech will be there too, that I gave... Uh, at the Peace on Drugs podcast launch party, which we just had. So it was a live event, and we recorded it. So I'll, I'll throw that up on here for the second part. And then um, once the video is edited, I'll throw that up on our YouTube channel as well. So we'll have that. And then in the third section today, uh, this, this t- section called Let's Talk. Today will be uh, Let's Talk Psychedelics. And um, I, I, I read an interesting article about... A new wave uh, about the new wave of psychedelics uh, being popularized in the form of microdosing, and I read some interesting counter arguments made by actually an advocate for psychedelics, but he thinks that we may be uh, misusing psychedelics. Um, so I'll talk about that um, in the third section. Um, and and one more thing I wanted to bring up uh, before we jump right in is. Uh, a mistake, an embarrassing mistake that I've been making because uh, one of my. F- one of my the favorite one of the best books I've ever read about the war on drugs that I recommend and I've been recommending every single podcast as one of my favorite authors, uh, Johan Hari, as I've been saying his name, is actually pronounced Johan Hari, and 
Well, my buddy Mike, uh, Michael O'Neill, who was the first guest on my podcast, he, he, he's been listening and he's, he, he told me, he's like, hey, I, I, like, I love the podcast, love what you're doing, but uh, you need to get the names right. Like, you, <laughs> He's like, it's, it's Johan Hari. And I was like, oh, and it sucks too because I, I listened to him on Rogan and I knew that. I don't know why. I just, I'm an American. You know, I re- read his book and it's spelled with a J. I say Johan. No, it's Johan Hari. The book is Chasing the Scream. It is definitely it's the best book I've read about the war on drugs. He covers all these different aspects of it, and he flies all over the world. It takes him three years to compile the research. I've talked about it on every podcast. I'm sure I will quote, quote it throughout the life of this podcast. And um, hopefully one day I'll have him on the podcast. But his name is Johan Hari. So I just wanted to make that correction. Thank you, Michael, for pointing that out. And we're going to jump right in. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs are menacing our society. What are your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. Section one, today on drugs. All right. Uh, first, with today on drugs, I'd like to list the states where cannabis is still entirely illegal, meaning even with severe illness such as um, seizures, where cannabis could save potentially save a child's life, these states have stood firm that you know no way, Jose, not on my watch. No one's smoking pot here. So these states, um, uh, these states should be shamed, and if you live in one of them, move. So these ridiculous states are, in alphabetical order, Alabama. No surprise there. This is a state that despite the DEA's reversal of the Kratom ban, you can still get arrested for possessing Kratom, which is a non-lethal, less addicting opiate that's non-morphine derivative. So Alabama is no shocker. Georgia. This is the state I was arrested in um, on my way to Bonnaroo in 2014. And so Georgia and Florida have this law... The, D, the, the DMVs worked out where if you get a pot charge or any drug charge, even if you're not driving, I was not driving when I got arrested, uh, but I got caught with pot, a very small amount of pot too, and I just got sentenced to like 12 hours of a course and pay $2,000 or something in a fine and, and you're done. So I paid the $2,000, I took the 12-hour course, but then I had to go for an evaluation for my driver's license, which was separate than what the judge ordered, because to the judge, I'm completely done, I'm out of the system. But the DMV says, well, you lose your driver's license for two years unless you get evaluated. I got evaluated. They said, up, I'm not doing good, even though in the evaluation I told them I never smoked pot. It was only for that concert. You know, I just, you know, I bullshitted them, but that's what you do. But it doesn't matter because it's a racket. They make money off sending you to these different places. So I had to do three months of DUI classes, DUI classes. I did not get a DUI. I got a small pot charge. So I had to do three months of classes with random mandatory drug testing throughout the thing. And had I failed one of those drug tests, it would have been a violation of probation. Even though I had finished my stuff, I was still technically on probation. And it would have put me back in jail for in Fort Myers, 30 days of mandatory in jail. Um, or until your court date, you were stuck in jail. You do not get, you cannot get out on bail for a parole violation because one person one time years ago violated parole and got, got arrested and got bailed out and went and shot a cop. So like from now on, nobody, like as if that's, that, that one person is now, that's what everybody's going to do. It makes no sense. So you're stuck in jail to your date, and then you have to go back into the system. And I watched some younger kids in the class who weren't able to not smoke pot for whatever reason. They're young, they're stupid. They, you know, I don't want to call them stupid, but 
you gotta you gotta follow the rules of this stupid system. The system is what's stupid, but you have to you have to go by these laws if you want to get out. And I watched kids fail those drug tests. One of them was for a second time, so he was looking at actual jail time. And it all was pot begin with pot charges. And so I did three months of DUI classes because of a stupid pot charge in Georgia where they were profiling us because they knew we were going to a concert. So Georgia's no surprise. I'm gonna be going off on some tangents on these states. That's all right. Idaho. Now, I gotta say, it's a shame that such a beautiful mountainous state as Idaho, like who wouldn't love to go hiking in Idaho and smoke a joint? I mean, well, you know, let's face it, I'm white, so chances are I'll have no problem. And I shouldn't laugh at that, it's horrible. But but the thing is, uh, a lot of these laws, like especially when I think of Alabama and Georgia, I I think they're just like a a way, you know, a way that they can keep a form of uh, legalized racism. So, you know, they, they, they won't notice the white guy who's doing it, but they did notice the black guy after they profiled him and pulled him over for some vague reason, like uh, he was acting suspicious, you know, some stupid thing. And um, so a lot of it is is ways for them to be racist without claiming, you know, showing overt racism. So, um, so Idaho, and then we have Indiana, the Hoosier state, uh, Iowa, um, that state is that basically uh, they they you know, Iowa basically picks our presidential candidates. So I say we need to give these people some weed. We got to get the we got to expand their minds so we don't get stuck with somebody like Joe Biden. I was in the Yang gang. Just gonna put put that out there. I liked Yang. I liked Tulsi Gabbard. I liked a few others. And you know you have to realize Joe Biden was the only candidate on that stage that openly said he was not for legalizing marijuana. Um, they have since changed changed the um, changed the rhetoric on that because it's so popular now, especially with the Democratic voters. So Joe Biden and Harris have said they're going to decriminalize. Um, we we'll, we'll get to that um, in a minute. We're going to keep uh, getting to these states. So then you have Kansas. There's no place like home. Um, you know. The Wizard of Oz and the Chiefs are the only two things I really know about Kansas, and one of them could never have happened without the psychedelic influence. And um, and I'm not talking about the team named after the people they slaughtered. You know, I'm, to change the subject again, if, if you want to understand the way that we treated the Native Americans, and especially, well, I shouldn't say especially, because it was all over the United States, they were treated in different horrible ways, but in one way, what, just read this book called uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, by David Gran. Um, it's about these these Indians that kept, um, I should say Native Americans, <laughs> they weren't Indians, uh, these Native Americans that were told to, that they, they kept making a move, the reservation move, because basically what would happen is they would move to a certain spot and then they'd find that the, they had fertile soil, so the white people would come in and say, no, we want the good soil, you gotta move here. And they kept moving them until finally they got stuck on this unfertile, rocky, no good soil, somewhere in either Kansas or Oklahoma. I want to say it was Oklahoma. And um, they, they finally got the right lawyers and legal contract where they would never be able to be removed from this land. They're good to go, but the land's not worth shit. And then they struck oil and became the richest family in the world. And um, systematically, they just started getting murdered. All the, the worst things you could imagine happened to these people. One of the grandmothers said, when this curse of this oil is finally over, we can maybe have our lives back. I mean, it was the saddest book of what happened once they legally couldn't take the land from them, how the, the white people moved in. It was just so fucked up. So anyway, so Kansas is on the list of states. And these are states that no medical, I said earlier, no medical marijuana, no any marijuana. Marijuana is illegal. CBD is the only thing you can get. 
And I'm not even sure. I need to look that up. CBD in Alabama. I wonder if that's even a thing there because they've still out, you know, st- still don't allow kratom. So let's knock out some more states. You got Kentucky, Nebraska, my home state of North Carolina. I'm so proud of you. That's why I don't fucking live there. I mean, seriously. And I, I live in Florida, which is, uh, we have medical, but that's not, to me, that's not good enough. We still have a long way to go. Medical is one thing, but why can't I just smoke it if I want to get high? Why do I have to have a medical reason? And it's not like you do. You, again, uh, I'm you know middle class, white person. I go to the doctor. I say, ah, I got anxiety. He goes, yeah, here you go. Here's some pot. And I, had the, I, I knew this other kid that used to come to the bar, uh, lived in the projects, you know, young young black man, and um, he couldn't afford the, to go spend $175 at a doctor plus $75 a year. And um, and also, it, that kind of joining the system just isn't in the, the culture for these, some of these kids. They're just, that's not the way. But anyway, so he got arrested for having a, um, a vape cartridge, which if you don't have your medical card, they moved to a felony. Marijuana was a misdemeanor. Now the vape cartridge is a felony if, if you don't have your pot card. So, I mean, just how racist this law looks where it's like if you have the money, you can get the vape cartridge and, and you can possess it legally. But if you don't have the money, you're a felon. That's fucked up. So um, anyway, so moving on, North Carolina doesn't have it. South Carolina, no shock there. Uh, Tennessee, like, come on, Nashville. I mean, how much music comes out of Tennessee? And you know, people that are making great music are getting high. There's also a lot of shit music coming out of, out of Nashville. I think country is actually, I think it's a great genre. I think the country here on the radio is, is absolute garbage. And maybe they need some more weed in their diet. You know, I don't know. If you love country and I offended you, I'm sorry. But you know what? There's some good country out there. I love Sturgill Simpson. And Sturgill Simpson is, is a hero on the you know the crusade of changing people's minds, especially people that are into the country culture. And he's singing about DMT and LSD. Um, you know, calls it future country. I loved Sturgill Simpson. But also, you know, people like Ryan Adams that have been doing good country for a long time. Um, but anyway, so t- Tennessee, Texas, and... Texas is no shock, but if you think about it, it should be the biggest shock because Texas is constantly talking about their freedom. They don't listen to the federal government. They make their own laws and they have more freedom than any state. Well, why the fuck can't you, can't you get high there? What's that about? Fucking Texas. And then you got Wisconsin and Wyoming. So that is the list of states that we are calling out today who don't even have medical marijuana. States that don't have recreational also deserve to be called out. Florida is one of them. You need it just completely across the board legalize. All right, so let's talk Biden and Harris, uh, both of whom have a pretty bad record when it comes to the war on drugs. Harris's prosecutors won more than 1,900 marijuana misdemeanor and felony convictions while she was DA. But uh, her and Biden's records aside, they have told multiple media sources that he will decriminalize marijuana and expunge prior marijuana convictions. And people, especially young people who are looking for careers, well, they're waiting. And this will help them tremendously. And I know because it stopped me from having a career in corporate America. And thank God. But uh, for some, that, that's all they want. And they have families to support and they can't gamble a career in music like I did. So like, what's the holdup? Biden won. So let's do it already. Now, um, decriminalization is great and it's a major step forward. But we need to decriminalize all drugs and ultimately legalize all drugs. So decriminalizing doesn't address state criminalization, as in like Alabama with Kratom. So the states will still be able to arrest if they 
say that it's illegal. So we need to do more like what happened with um, gay marriage when the states were like, we're, we're not going to have it here. The Supreme Court said, you're no longer going to stop gay people from getting married. Well, we need the Supreme Court to come in and say, you can no longer arrest people for possession. And then what we need is the Senate to come in. Because decriminalization also doesn't um, affect the uh, interstate commerce or fix banking and the IRS uh, Section 280E issues. So, um, but so what we, if we really want to see change, we need Congress to do something. But um, right now, we're not going to see that. I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon uh, because these, you know, these old bags of shit like fucking Mitch McConnell. Sorry for the language, but I mean, he stood firm against it. And, and you know it's because Big Pharma's lined his pockets. I mean, I don't think it's because he has some conviction of just he really thinks it's best for the children if they don't have marijuana. Because all science and studies shows, also American opinion polls show, we want it legal. So why? what's the holdup? This is supposed to be a democracy, and most people want marijuana to be legal. I don't think most people want all drugs to be legal because, again, the propaganda machine has fed them and people are just really ignorant on the issues of drugs. But marijuana has been the first one. It, you know, marijuana will become a gateway drug, I think. Not the gateway leading us to do harder drugs, but the gateway to legalizing harder drugs, to get people off of harder drugs. So ultimately, that propaganda bullshit about marijuana being a gateway drug will become the case in a completely different way. So... Um, so that's kind of where we are legally. And also the biggest thing that just happened, of course, we've already talked about it in this podcast, but February, Oregon became the first state to completely decriminalize all drugs. And um, I've heard a lot of people say a lot of negative things about that um, because they do not understand what that means. They think that now you can go to Oregon and do heroin. You have to, you have to, you just still have to find a place to buy it. It has not been legalized. It has been decriminalized. If you were in, the, in that state and you had a personal amount of heroin, you would not be a criminal. You would be treated with a health problem, and they would um, make they would want you to get therapy, and that's a, de a definite step in the right direction. So I applaud Oregon for the steps that they're making, um, and we need the federal government to do the same thing. We need you know backwards states like Alabama, um, places like Texas. I mean, Texas has talked about wanting to secede. Maybe we just let them go. Bye, Texas. Have fun. Have fun with your problems, as you, they just realized. And I don't actually believe that. No, I think that we are the United States, and I think these we need to uh, federally tell these states you can no longer arrest people for drug use. We're going to fix the drug problem. But um, So the last last little part of this segment, I just want to read some drug war statistics. You can go to drugpolicy.org. So it says, The amount we spend annually in the U.S. on the drug war is $47 billion plus. The number of arrests in 2018 for drug law violations was 1,654,282. The number of drug arrests that were for possession only were 1,429,299. That's almost one and a half million people were arrested for possessing drugs they planned to do themselves. That is unacceptable, America. Land of the free. Get the fuck out of here with that. Number of people arrested for marijuana law violations that were just for possessing marijuana. 608,775 people in America were arrested for marijuana that they possessed for their own use. That reminds me of a funny story when I was getting arrested for a little pot plant. And, my, and the cops were tell, they were charging me with um, intent to sell and a manufacture for one little pot plant. And my mom told the cops, she's just like... He wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna sell it. He was gonna smoke it. She thought that was the funniest thing ever. But it is true. I, it was just a little pot plant. I was gonna grow it and try to smoke it. But I got, a, I got two felony charges and two misdemeanor charges for one plant. That did get dropped. I think it again 
helps because I'm white. And I hate to sound like that, that, you know, that liberal that that's on some kind of high horse trying to act like I get it, guys. No, I'm just saying that I do think that, my, that even that I was uh, targeted because of the way I dressed and stuff when I was young. And um, I did have to, you know, fight some charges for drugs because I was the skateboard kid. So I do understand what that kind of discrimination is like. But I could change the way I dressed. You can't change the color of your skin. And also, I think once I got into the courtroom and I had changed the way I dressed for court appearances, my charges were lesser. Those felonies got dropped. I got stuck with some misdemeanors that are still on my record today. I hope they get expunged. I hope Biden does his job, like he said. But it won't really affect my life that much because my misdemeanor charge doesn't stop me from voting, doesn't stop me from buying a gun, and I'm no longer seeking a job in corporate America. They can suck it. I don't give a fuck if they want me there or not. I'm doing my own thing. And, I, and also, I recommend, just like David Buckley, who was on the podcast, he's a felon. He couldn't get a job. He said, told the system to suck it also, and he started his own company. He's doing great. So remember, that's always out there. You know, you might have to get a job in a restaurant doing some work you don't want to save a little money first, but as soon as you get some money to bankroll some of the stuff you want to do, you can get out of corporate America. I honestly would love to see a world where Amazon and Walmart aren't the only places you can buy shit. I'd love to go, you know, go down the road and buy stuff from people that are making their own clothes and stuff like that. Anyway, that's a tangent right there. So, um, those are some of the laws. Um, oh, here we go. Percentages of people arrested in 2017 for drug law violations who are black or 27% when they only make up 13.4%. That means basically they're twice as likely to get arrested for drug charges because of the color of their skin. You could argue it's because um, they're in higher crime areas where the cops are. Uh, and and some, of the, some of that is true, but the, the problem is why are the cops in? It's because it's the poor areas where, people, where the drugs are more exposed because the drugs are more, they're, they're more readily available there because people are making money on, on them in the poor areas. So it... It is an attack on the poor also, but if you look at poor white communities versus poor uh, black communities, the drug arrests are higher. So these are things that we need to fix. And um, so that, that is the end of section one. Um, the, you know, I'll do, I'm going to do one of these every month or so where we talk about any progress that have been made. And um, anybody that would want to come on and be on a segment, somebody who knows um, more, you know, has more information about the things I'm talking about, um, please shoot me an email. Go to my website. You can message me, thepeaceondrugs.com. And um, let's get on to the next section. Section two, the peace on drugs live. This podcast is supposed to do that. It's supposed to be upsetting at times. It's supposed to be infuriating to realize the true consequences and the sad realities of this ridiculous, tired, ineffective, and let's be honest, disastrous war on drugs. So to stand here and say that I couldn't be prouder of my husband sounds like a cliche and that truly just wouldn't be enough to say. He has tirelessly worked out his dream, this mission, even what you could call the beginning of a much needed crusade. His intentions are pure and from the heart, informed and knowledgeable, passionate and ethical. And now it's his turn to do the talking, both now and for the future of the peace on drugs. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Aaron Akulis. Thank you so much, Megan. That was beautiful. Um, can't lie, I'm a little disappointed. I, I thought you were going to open with uh, the national anthem. Now, um, thank everybody so much for coming here and supporting the podcast, uh, The Peace on Drugs. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Aaron Akulis. I am the host and creator of the podcast. Um, 
I wouldn't have been able to do it without the help of my wife, Megan, who helped, as she just said, turn our spare bedroom into a podcast studio. And also, thanks to my guests, it wouldn't be a show without you. And um, last but not least, thanks to the wonderful Tammy Zink, my mother-in-law, who not only built and designed my entire website, she also helped me with Podbean and MailChimp and taught me video editing. And also, I want to give a shout out to my good friend David Buckley and my sister Kristen Jones, who couldn't be here because they're in North Carolina, but they did two podcasts remotely, so thank you. And um, this is actually the first time I've spoke in front of an audience with a, without a musical instrument in front of me uh, since public speaking in community college. And um, I actually remember the last speech I gave because it was the very last speech of uh, the semester. It was the big speech that counted for 90% of our grade and I gave it with a 103 fever and the flu. And um, I remember the teacher telling us to pick a topic that we're passionate about and she gave a list of a few things she just didn't want us to cover and one of those things was why marijuana should be legal. So naturally I picked for my topic why marijuana should be legal. And um, it was the first time when I was working on this piece that I really hit the books and researched the topic of the war on drugs and the, and the reasons for the prohibition, the nefarious side, you know, the lobbyists from Big Pharma, who they don't want you to be able to grow a plant in your backyard that has all these medicinal properties that can heal everything from insomnia to seizures. They want to make a pill for each individual problem that they can market and sell to you. So they didn't want that. And also you had a uh, lobbying from big alcohol. Alcohol doesn't want to compete with a, another recreational drug that's arguably just as fun or more fun and definitely safer and less addictive. And then you had these other strange um, lobbyings from the makeup industry, the cotton industry, and the paper industry. They lobbied against hemp because the hemp seed oil and the hemp fibers actually created a cheaper product than they offered and even more environmentally friendly. So they lobbied it successfully got hemp outlawed. Hemp is actually a sister plant to cannabis that doesn't even have enough THC to get you high and they got it outlawed. But um, luckily that was just reversed in the 2018 Farm Bill. So we're starting to see some changes finally, but back when I was working on that speech was when I first really became an advocate for ending the prohibition. And I remember going to my teacher, visibly sick, 103 fever, flu, and I said, is there any way I could do my speech with the group the following week? And I showed her all the work I had done to show her I'm not stalling, like I did the work, I'm ready to give my speech, I'm just very sick. And she said, nope, you have to go today. So I did. I gave my speech and she gave me a D. And her reason for giving me a D was lack of enthusiasm. My speech had no color. And that's the drug bias right there. She, her lack of compassion was 100% because she hated the material. And and um, after a strongly worded email to the school and to her, she did eventually change that grade. She changed it from a D to a B, but I had to fight for it. And that's for a letter grade. I've also had to fight drug conviction charges for simple possession. And I've had to sit through those bullshit classes where you have to go through, you know, go to some class where some, somebody's going to teach me about addiction, somebody who's never experienced it in their life. So I have to, I've done that. But none of that compares to the fight people actually are fighting still today, people that are locked up in cages for simple possession. And that's, that's something that has to change. And that's why I wanted to do this podcast, The Peace on Drugs, because enough is enough. And I've talked for 10 years about doing a podcast, but my problem's always been I always have 100 things going on at once. I'm like, I'm trying to start a band, I'm trying to record a solo album, I'm writing a novel, I'm trying to do a podcast. And, the, uh, and, and 
when I read uh, Stephen Pressfield's War of Art, that's when I really understood what it was. It was resistance. And resistance is most heavy right when we're at the finish line for something. Because basically we're about to be vulnerable. We're about to put our stuff out there. And it's much easier to just, instead of doing that, to just, oh, I'm just going to work on this instead. This is better anyway. And constantly do that. So I was constantly doing that. And resistance comes in all forms, I realize. You know, drug addiction, depression, um, binge watching Game of Thrones. I found all kinds of reasons to not do the things I wanted to do. But um, I realized that, um, you know, so well, so here's an example of resistance. I, this, this podcast idea came to me six years ago. I finally released the piece on drugs. But this idea came six years ago, and that's how long it took me to finally do it. And I remember when it first came to me, I listened to, um, uh, I heard Dr. Carl Hart on a podcast. And I was blown away that somebody so successful, a PhD, a professor at Columbia University, talked so openly about his recreational, his own recreational drug use. And we're not even talking about like marijuana, we're talking about, he was talking about cocaine and heroin. And I was blown away. And I remember thinking, that's it. I want to do a podcast completely devoted to drugs. Drug addiction, the war on drugs, the psychedelic experience, all of that. I remember calling my friend Brandon, who's actually here tonight, came from Alabama to be here. I also want to give a shout out real quick to Mike O'Neill and DJ Big John, who are also here. They were on the first podcast, or the, the first, two of the first three podcasts, which was actually released on Monday. And um, actually, I meant to do this earlier, too. I got to say thank you, Big John, for putting this together for me. And thank you, Eden, for having me here tonight. Thank you so much. This is, uh, we're, we're at Eden, uh, a show bar in Fort Myers, Florida. But um, I've been talking about doing this forever. I remember I called Brandon, and I said, I, I finally figured out what I'm going to do the podcast about. And um, I asked him, I said, what's the one thing I've been consistently more passionate about than music? And drugs. He, <laughs> he knew right away. He said, drugs. I was like, yep. And I was like, I already have a name, The Peace on Drugs. And um, I drew up a logo. It had uh, like a pill bottle with Vicodin pills spilling through the letters and uh, marijuana plant budding through the words. And it was a little juvenile. And uh, I ended up recording an intro that was not too dissimilar from the one I have now. But I recorded it through a four-track cassette recorder by playing YouTube clips through a microphone. Um, and then I burned the whole thing to a CD. So, not surprisingly, the, the whole project fell apart. But, um, you know, I wasn't in the right headspace or the right decade. But um, that's where, right there, is where the road to beating resistance began. And I, I knew I had to fix my life before I, could, before I could do anything of importance. So I started working on myself. I got into meditation, fitness, I knocked out addiction. I married my best friend, and um, I ironed out my life, and I, I find that I'm in the best place in my life than I've ever been. And um, that's not to say that I'm fixed completely. You know, I still have a long ways to go. And I think no matter where we find ourselves in our lives, there's always room to grow. But um, thank you so much for being here this evening and for you know, supporting the podcast. This is the beginning of a dream realized. And I always thought my first one of these would be a CD release party, but we, we find ourselves at Forks in the Road constantly. And we don't always take the road that we were traveling. We veer off, we crash sometimes. And um, sometimes we get speeding tickets, which in this analogy is uh, arrested for simple possession. But it's all these things in my life that happened that brought me to this moment right here. I could think of no place I'd rather be. So thank you so much for being a part of this. And um, I'm gonna give it back to the DJ. And uh, this is the part where I would love to say, uh, enjoy the complimentary mushrooms and ecstasy, but and this here, land of the free, that is a freedom we are yet to have. But we do have the freedom to get blind drunk. So let's have a drink. Cheers, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. I love you guys. Peace out. Thank you.
section three. Let's talk psychedelics. All right. This is the last section of my solo podcast, uh, Let's Talk Psychedelics. So I read this article on Rooster uh, called Microdosing Has a Critic, One of Its Pioneers. Uh, my buddy Kevin sent the article to me for the podcast, and actually I found it really interesting. Um, the title alone um, kind of scared me. I don't like to, to think negatively about things that I, I already think positively about, but that's not what this podcast is about. I'm not here to, as, you know, to have some kind of echo chamber where I just repeat the things I already believe in. I'm trying to learn myself in this article. But the thing is, the guy's totally for psychedelics. He's a, he's a, he's a psychonaut, he's, but he, he thinks that they're being misused in the mainstream. So um, the article claimed that uh, like microdosing, um, like really, so it said it really became popular after this book called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Yeah, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide by James Fadiman. And um, it was these few chapters at the end where uh, he talked about taking small doses during regular activities like work or going to the gym or whatever, and um, things that led to you know money, success, and power. And uh, the article goes on to say that, he, that, that this author learned about microdosing from this guy, Robert Forte. Um, so this guy tracks down Forte. He's an interesting cat. He, uh, he's, he says microdosing is, and this, this guy, Robert Forte, is the one who says that microdo- microdosing is way overblown. And um, this dude's authored mo- multiple books on psychedelics. He was friends with Timothy Leary. Um, he he was he even talked to Albert Hoffman. Albert Hoffman told him about microdosing. Albert Hoffman Hoffman is the sci- the Swiss sci- Swiss scientist that um, actually discovered LSD. He synthesized first synthesized it and then accidentally ingested it and um, pretty much was a f- was a fan of psychedelics and did them the rest of his life. But he he basically talked about um, you know said the psychedelics don't fare well with the masses. They you know and then this Forte guy said you know. Think about it like sex. It's something sexy. It's something desirable, but you don't want it to just be out in the public. It's, it gets gross. Um, but um, so Albert Hoffman said he only did LSD about a dozen times or so, but that he ate small doses of it a lot, and it helped him with writing and with work and stuff like that. So, um, so he, uh, so the, so Forte's thing about psychedelics uh, being used as microdosing the way it is today, the way it's become a trend, is he said he's like when it's used for work, like work productivity isn't what psychedelics are supposed to be about. You know that's Adderall or coffee, and that it's basically through microdosing is corporate America's way of figuring out how to incorporate psychedelics into its model. Not psychedelics is supposed to be its own model. It's supposed to shatter a par- the paradigm that is corporate America, and that's what kind of happened in the late '60s, right? You had this whole young the youth culture didn't want to go to fight the war the people in charge couldn't understand it don't you love your country it's like well what the fuck are you going to war for you're not supposed to ask that you're supposed to put on the uniform and get in the boat like we're going over here to kill some people nope not feeling that one anymore so so it kind of shattered the paradigms but now you have and he also even went on in this article that was really fascinating i thought when he talked about uh about you know using mdma to help people with ptsd he said it's great, and I don't, I don't. He said definitely don't think we shouldn't help people with PTSD, but that kind of, you know, blurs the problem or covers up the actual problem. The problem is PTSD to begin with. Why do we have soldiers coming home with PTSD? Why are we still fighting in these ridiculous wars? Can we stop war instead of just saying no, we're fine. We have a, we have a cure for for some of the ailments when they get back, so we're good to go. 
So, so this is kind of the misuse of psychedelics. Psychedelics don't, you know, almost to justify war. If we can, if we can treat the people that come back, then then it's more justified. It's not justified. Um, so, you know, a lot of these wars that were that were are about money and power, and and they're not justified. So, the idea that we can use psychedelics. And not to say that the people that have already fought and that have PTSD shouldn't be treated. And he does say that in the article. I, I really recommend the article. It's called, once again, I'll, I'll say the name of it is... Microdosing has a critic, one of its pioneers. It's on Rooster. It's online. Online news site. The Rooster... So I definitely recommend this article. Um, but yeah, he talks about you know the the productivity being a factor with you know microdosing. Um, he, he said microdosing is re, is being reframed uh, is reframing psychedelics to serve the mainstream values of consumers, and so so I just want to know what people's thoughts are on that because I microdose I, I do but I, I you know I'm not in corporate America in that way so it helps me with my writing helps me with my recording I feel like it helps with creativity and I don't even call it microdosing I call it mini dosing because a microdose like um, I was listening to Paul Stamets and I think he said something like 0.2 of a gram of, of mushrooms I'm more like 0.5 to one like I want to feel the, the the you know the mushroom coursing through my veins but I don't want to be tripping I want you know because don't get me wrong there are times when I do want to have the full experience, but there's times when I want to go to work and just have this energy and this it adds a little brightness to the day. So I do like microdosing. Now, what if, if you're using it for your boring job, which is to, you know, file insurance claims all day long, and it makes it that if it, if it were to make that job interesting, then I don't think you're using it for the right thing. I think that you should do a, a larger dose expand your mind enough to think maybe I shouldn't be doing this shitty job and I should find something else to do with my time. I could be a kayak instructor. I mean, there's so many cool jobs out there that you can kind of create on your own. Um, you need, you know, you need some imagination and just figure out, you know, you know, there's, and also if if you're in a specific area of the country where there's not a lot of work except for the work you're doing, you can move. There's, there's, this is not, you know, the 1800s when going across the country, you know, caught, you know, spent 10, took 10 years and, you know, you lost family members. This is, you, you can just hop on a plane, you know, sell the shit you have there, hop on a plane, rent an apartment, find a decent job and start saving. Um, I know that people with families, some of these things aren't, aren't as easy. So I'm not, I'm t- downplaying the plight of some people. But if you do have means to move into a better place, you can. Also, there's a lot of online work that you can do. You can start a company, you can set, buy and sell things online from wherever you are in the world. So, I think using psychedelics to expand. So here's an example. I have a friend of mine, TJ, who was raised in a cult, a cult a lot of you have heard of, Jehovah's Witness, and it is a cult. I believe all religions are cults in some form, but but what would define this one and make it, I specifically call it a cult, is because when you are excommunicated, once you, um, when you, you know, leave the religion, if your family excommun- you know, excommunicates you, that's a cult. If I, I've told my family, they are all very religious and they are Christians, and I've told them many times my beliefs that I, I do not believe in organized religion. I I am not a follower of of any Christianity or anything like that, and they still love me and talk to me all the time. They're not in a cult in that way. They are you know caught up in their beliefs and do give a certain percentage of their money to the church. I do think it's a version of cult. It's just not nearly as severe as one that would excommunicate you. So my friend TJ. Left actually, he had a mind blowing experience on mushrooms. He was already questioning, you know, the dogma and everything. 
mind-blowing experience of mushrooms, gave him the courage. He, he is married, and he left the faith, had to leave his wife, and his family excommunicated him, and they, they are still living in Pennsylvania, which is kind of the headquarters of the Jehovah's Witness religion. And he has moved down here to Florida, and he's going to be on the podcast and tell his story. But this is an example how psychedelics are supposed to work, to break those chains. Sometimes in a sad way where it breaks your chains and then you no longer have a family anymore. But what the psychedelics could do if, if his family members could have a powerful experience like that is maybe break those chains too. Because nobody needs to be caught up in, in, these, in the grip of some kind of you know, ideological thought cage that traps you in, you know, you need to break free of that. And that can be, that thought cage could be a job that you think you have to have that you don't think there's any way out of. Boom, a big psychedelic experience and you're out of it versus a little psychedelic experience that allows you to enjoy that crappy job and that crappy life that you shouldn't be enjoying because you should be doing something better with your time. So that's the discussion. I wish I was talking with another person on this podcast about it, but um, I didn't have a guest this week and I wanted to release something, so I decided to talk psychedelics. Now, I have to jump off here. I have to go to work. I'm going to go play a gig out on Sanibel Island, and I'm about to eat a microdose before I go because it's going to make me have a pretty fun awesome show tonight. So love you all. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week. I should have my friend Dustin Matthews on. He's scheduled to be on. Uh, We're going to talk about addiction. He grew up in Gastonia. He now lives in Florida and is a grower for True Leaf. He grows cannabis for a living. So we're going to talk to him. And then I'm going to have my friend, ex-Jehovah's Witness, uh, Psychonaut TJ. Um, I just met the guy. I don't even know his last name. He'll be on too. Um, So thank you guys so much for listening. Peace Peace out.